Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Property Soup, where we talk everything property. Today's episode, I'm joined with my colleague, John from Access Wealth. I'm Alan from Foundation Property. Great topic today. If you had a million dollars to invest in property, would you buy one property, two properties, or would you buy three properties? That's what we're gonna be talking about today. And uh, Zoom's doing a really weird thing it's uh, there's just a whole bunch of balloons. I don't know if anyone else using Zoom has been experiencing this. There's balloons Random. and thumbs up coming on on the video. But anyway, Random hand signal emojis. Yeah, if you're listening in the car, hopefully you know what I mean. But yeah, what what do we do? If you've got a million dollars, should you buy one property, two or three? And the reason we're talking about this today is because this actually came up in a conversation with I had with a gentleman the other day, and um, he actually has a property which is worth more than a million. Uh, in Sydney. And the question was, you know, what, what's better? So we're going to be just diving into that uh, today. So John, first thoughts? Well, I think it's worth clarifying a couple of things. So I think we should say a million dollars worth of leverage, borrowing capacity, because if I had a million bucks, I'd buy as many properties as I could, right? So mm-hmm. if I just had that spare cash under the couch cushions, that's the first thing. How many properties can I get? However, if we're assuming that this million dollars is all we can actually spend um, outside of stamp duty and property costs, then in that case, personally, I'd get two, right? So two properties worth yep. 500K in that sort of range. And we'll go into some of the reasons as to why. I'm going to guess that, Alan, you might be feeling the same way. I'd probably go for two. Yeah. Hmm. What, what are your reasons for choosing one? Because, you know, we're talking about, let, let's let's take, let's, uh, take some assumptions here, right? So mm-hmm. you could either buy one property in Sydney for a million dollars or a million plus, whatever but you could maybe get two properties in different markets for half of that, let's say five to 600K. Yep. So why, why, let, let's explore actually why it might be a good idea or what are the advantages of buying in, in Sydney at a million dollars? Let's explore that first. I'd sort of even take a bit of a step back on this and think about what are people actually thinking when they come to us wanting to make those decisions? Because much like yourself, we've had clients come through wanting to do both those things to say, oh, I really want to cap my purchase to 300K because it's less risky in big inverted commas if you're hearing that on audio. Yeah. Um, or we've had people say, I really think that I should spend a million dollars in the property because mm-hmm. I'm more convinced that it will grow more, right? Yeah. Um, which is almost always when we really break it right down, just an extension of their own confirmation bias that because they like a certain area, therefore that is the only area they should believe in that will grow. Right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's typically what we're really dealing with most of the time when we actually just break down the fundamentals of what's likely to give us growth from being uh, priced below the median for its own city, mm-hmm. uh, situated in a pocket that's due to grow, that typically fits around that 500k mark if we're not getting too far away from an actual population center. So typically on the on the million dollar side of things, when, when I speak to a client who's fixated on it, when we ask them why... It's almost always because, well, I like that area. I think the reason that people think they, or they start to convince themselves that the area is good. This actually reminds me of another example. I spoke to a lady, uh, I think it was a couple of years back, and she'd actually bought in Victoria around Box Hill. Mm -hmm. And her parents said, buy in that area. It's a really good area. Um, You know, it's more affluent. You get in there. Um, there's a lot of demand there, uh, good schools, etc. So if you buy in there, your likelihood for your property to grow is going to be faster 
So she went and bought a, around, she spent around a million dollars on that property. Mm. So people think that, okay, if I can get into a, okay, the uh, inverted commas again, oh, there goes the balloons again. If anyone's watching this, <laughs> this is getting ridiculous. But I think people think like I must get into a blue chip area, mm. right? I must get into blue chip and blue chip means it's an infield suburb, uh, really good schools around. Like it's, it's the, the suburbs existed for a long time. It's been gentrified and there's more kind of affluent, like higher income people in that area. So it's considered blue chip. And, and the theory behind that is that you get into that area. Oh, that's a winner. You're going to get heaps of capital growth, yeah. which, which in most cases is probably going to be true. Correct. But John, why, why would that actually hurt you as an investor? Well, the capital growth itself wouldn't. Um, I think it's always worth bearing in mind, though, that when we actually break down that blue chip perception, and thank mm. goodness my Zoom isn't randomly throwing out balloons like yours. <laughs> <laughs> so when we actually break down that perception, what it comes down to is a perception of status, right? That because mm. we live in XYZ area, whether it's mm. the North Shore, North Shore of Sydney or the Northern Beaches, or perhaps the um, the east of Melbourne, right? You know, mm. inner suburbs of Melbourne, because we believe that living here, and again, this inherited belief from the parents that because our property has grown, therefore this is the best area for investment, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Now, will the property grow? Probably, right? Yep. It's desirable, um, it's yep. established, that's sensational. Yep. However, um, what are the trade-offs we're getting for that growth? Because again, mm -hmm. you know, if there's a maximum I come back to, there are no silver bullets, there is only trade-offs, right? Mm -hmm. There are no perfect investments ever. So yep. when we go into a million dollar price point for a property, is it likely we're going to have a rental yield that really keeps good pace with that 4% or above? Mm -hmm. Probably not, right? Mm -hmm. So let's let's just work off some really basic numbers for that. The, the median income, or sorry, median household income in the country is about $92,500 per household, yep. right? Now, if we're getting a million dollar property and we're hoping to get 800 bucks per week of rental for that property, sure. well, logically, that's about 40, 45% of median household income. Mm -hmm. Is that really likely to give us the biggest tenant pool possible? Probably not. Mm -hmm. So our ability to ask for that high rent gets whittled down, whittled down. Now the question becomes, can we actually afford to hold that property long-term and really cash flow it out? Mm -hmm. In most cases, it's usually pretty challenging. That's definitely something you need to consider when you just spend a million dollars on one property. Your mm -hmm. rental yield is most likely not going to be, a, you're going to be out of pocket a lot. You know, in these kind of, let's say, let's assume a blue chip suburb in Sydney or Melbourne. Yep. Look, you, you, 100% for sure, you're going to get excellent capital growth. Yes. Right? You're going to get above the national average of 7%. Probably. Okay. You're probably going to be hitting 9 to 10% average Could every be. year because it's, it's a highly desirable area. But the thing you need to consider is, let's say you've got a $1 to $1.2 million property. Mm -hmm. Your mortgage is going to be around 900K. Yep. Your interest rep repayments are going to be extremely high. Mm -hmm. Then you've got maintenance on the property, all that sort of stuff. You're probably going to be out of pocket between thirty dollars to $40,000 per year out of pocket. In many I, cases, yeah. Yeah. I, I actually just roughly calculated it in my head the other day, and I was pretty much spot on for this, this gentleman that I spoke to the other day. He was out of, he was out of pocket $37,000 a year out of his own pocket on interest only on this property. So that, look, I don't know the exact calculation here, right? 
Um, but that $37,000, that's actually eating into your capital growth. Hmm. What, what the, maybe your maths is a bit faster than mine, John, or if you've got a calculator there, what is actually $37,000 on, let's say a million? About three, 3.7%. Right, there, so... you go. there you go. Right. So you're, you're, by, you're trying to get into a suburb where you're going to get, let's say, better than average capital growth performance. So you might be getting that 10% capital growth. But if your cash flow is eating into that capital growth, what are you actually getting? You're hmm. actually only getting 7% capital growth, which is the national average. And on top but, of that, hmm. you've got the stress of negative cash flow of, as, as an investor. Right. But there's another element to that too, and you really bang on, you know, pointing this mm-hmm. out as well. So, mm-hmm. a lot of people who'd argue against that would say, "Yeah, but but Alan, capital growth is compounding. So, mm-hmm. whatever new figure we've got for the property now, um, sure. if I'm getting nine or ten percent on that, I'm not mm-hmm. just getting, you know, yes, the the cash flow sucks, but it's linear, whereas the capital growth compounds, right? So it's mm-hmm. going to be a force multiplied down the line. Yep. That's wonderful in theory. It's totally irrelevant if you can't afford to hold the property, though. Yeah. Right. Because if that $37,000 now becomes down the line, all costs increase. Do you think your council rates will never go up? Mm. Do you think your water rates will never go up? Yep. Do you think everyone's just going to be nice and never increase your costs or nothing? Right. Mm. That's not the case, right? Yep. So down the line as our costs go up, as they will, if we reach a breaking point, we simply can't afford to hold that property anymore. We need to sell down in a time that's usually inconvenient, potentially yep. not the best time to sell down for us financially or for the local yep. market. Yep. Um, then it's and, relevant. And, and of course, if you have to sell down your property early, you don't actually realize the gains that you were actually trying to make. Which right? was the point. Yeah, if you have to let it go prematurely. Exactly. Yeah. So, so now that we've kind of cleared that up, look, yes, you can get really good capital growth. You're also going to have to factor in that you know, negative cash flow on, on a property like that is eating into your capital growth. And really, you might be getting average or just above average. You've got the added stress of negative cash flow. And, you know, one thing to think about, what if? What happens? Because th- stuff, stuff can happen. People can be out of work. You know, kids come along. Uh, one, one of the partners might be out of work for a little bit. What happens if one year or, you know, for six months, you cannot, you just can't support that property? Yeah. Right? And then you just got to let it go. Now, that's, that's a worst case scenario, but this is just something to consider. All right. So now let's have a look at, the difference between that and let's say getting two properties worth five hundred or six hundred thousand dollars. What's the difference? Yeah. So a couple of big upsides. So holding those two properties worth say five, six hundred K, one is that obviously our rental income is much more likely to be a high percentage of yield. In other words, to be mm. sufficient enough to get close to covering our costs, if not yep. cover them. Right. So yep. holding the properties now becomes a lot easier. The secondary point we didn't talk about in cash flow, which is land tax, right? So a mm. million dollar property in every state by the Northern Territory off the top of my head um, will attract some form of land tax, which in some states will be um, a little bit annoying and other ones will get crippling depending on where you are, right? Yep. So your ability to hold the property gets reduced. 500 to 600K though, depending on the asset type, depending on the state, I mean, you're either looking at nil land tax or not very much. Yeah, and that's that's really about like spreading your risk or not having all your eggs in one basket as well, right? Correct. Yeah, due diversification. So if we're invested in two markets, let's say that being a bit smarter, you know, we decide, okay, this 500K per state we can deploy, we deploy that in two different states in the country. Mm-hmm. We're now exposed to two different markets, two different growth curves. And also, if the time does come to sell down, we don't need to eat all the frogs at once, 
Yeah, and and coming back to yield as well, John. Like a lot of people are just going to be listening this listening to this in their car. Um, but imagine you've got one property which is negative by thirty to forty thousand dollars a year. The yield is is not going to be great on that property. Whereas you can get two properties with even a five. You know, it's still possible to get five to six percent yields. But even if it was at around a four and a half to five percent, the yep. property in most cases, you know, you'd be able to. It, it would almost take care of itself. Even worse, worst case scenario numbers, right? Yep. Let's say it costs you 9,000 bucks. Maybe let's just up it a bit, 10,000 bucks mm. a property. Yep. Sold something worth roughly five, $600,000 in today's market. Yeah. Net, right? Yeah. So the total holding cost for those two assets is 20,000 bucks a year mm. versus 40, right? Yeah. It's a lot less. And now if we're in that position where we do have to sell one of the assets, right? Again, we don't have to sell both. We can just sell one, hold the other. That's a great point. Yeah. So if, if life does hit us, we've got much more flexibility. Yeah, 100%. That's that's <laughs> a really great point that you're just mitigating your risk. Yeah. And we only yep. pay the capital gains tax on one property that way, right? So yeah. think, about, think about that stress. Let's imagine, like you mentioned, Alan, we do lose a job or something bad's happened to the mm. family. We sell this huge asset. We now get smashed with a big capital gains tax bill all at once. We've got yep. nothing to run away from. Um, and yep. we're, we're starting from scratch with nothing. And you just mentioned as well, John, you, you mentioned, you know, different property markets have different cycles. That's mm-hmm. another reason why I would prefer to get two properties versus one, because what happens if you want to cash out, right, at a certain point and, the, and you've, got, you, you've only got one property in a market and it's in a slow market. Yes. And then, you, you know, you want to sell down, you've, you, you have to cash out and... You're, you're bas- you've just basically missed the next cycle and then you two, three years pass and then you think, oh man, I could have made another half a million dollars. Whereas if you'd had to spread it, hmm. you know, that different markets will be moving in different cycles at times. So you could maybe sell down one and then, you know, you could still get an uplift on the, on the next cycle run for another market. So that's why I prefer to have it across two for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The other side of it, when we've halved the holding costs of actually holding them, you're requirement to actually have to sell down has just been exponentially reduced as yeah. well. Yeah, 100%, 100%. So, okay, we've explored one, we've explored two properties. Are we going to look at, let's say, three or four? Would you buy, like, if you got a million dollars, would you buy three or four? Like, what, what does that look like? But both of them are equally, it's the same proposition. So when we start mm-hmm. talking properties that get to a certain price point or below, Inherently, I think we can all agree that any assets underlying value in a market is its supply versus mm-hmm. its demand, mm-hmm. right? So when we start looking at cheaper properties, why mm-hmm. do people feel the thought to do it? So the idea is that, okay, if a you know, reasonably priced property reduces mm-hmm. our risk curve somewhat, then surely a low priced property reduces that risk curve even further, mm-hmm. right? And it's an interesting thought until you actually really unpack it. So risk is often a smokescreen that people use to say, I'm risk averse as a way of saying I'm scared, which is mm-hmm. perfectly fine. I mean, I've been, yep. I've been there as well, right? But if really unpack it. So the thought is if we now spend 300,000 bucks or 250,000 bucks on a property, mm-hmm. that it's going to reduce our chances of losing money, right? Mm-hmm. Now, in an absolute sense on cash flow, yeah, okay. So will you likely have any sort of negative cash flow renting out a property like this? Probably not, mm-hmm. right? So you might go from a $9,000 holding cost down and down, right? Yeah. Cool story. Um, however, capital growth. So what, again, what, what people looking for the million dollar properties really see as their um, 
their golden goose. Yep. This is totally missing, or not totally, but really to a large degree missing with our properties that go to a lower price point. Why is that? Because they're not centrally located, right? In order to get that cheap for a property, you simply have to move further away from CBDs, yeah. amenities, yeah, yeah, infrastructure, 100%. Yep. employment hubs. Yep, yep. I, I 100% agree with that, that uh, once you go down to that range, well, like that we're talking 20, we're talking February 2024, right? You know, hmm. obviously 10 years ago, that would be different. But we're yeah. talking in today's market. Um you're very, you're really limiting yourself to to properties where you might have to go. Uh, I'm not saying, and we're not saying that regional areas are bad. There are some great regional areas with loads of potential, but you, in a lot of cases, you're going to have to limit your options to, like you said, John, areas where you're further away from metro areas, large CBDs with large populations, with growing yes. populations, less chances for capital growth. You'll probably still get some depending on the asset. Yeah. You'll have a you'll have a strong yield, but um, capital growth um, prospects probably a little bit lower. Not great. So what, what we tend to find as a rule of thumb, re- regional is not the same thing, right? So o- oftentimes people say regional properties, they're comparing um, Newcastle to Lightning Ridge, right? And like, those are two very different places to live, mm. right? They're, they're not the same at all. Um, Newcastle and the entire Hunter region, um, again, we could say is a really solid satellite city. You've got incredible amenity and infrastructure for the residents of those areas. Same mm. with Ballarat, right? Um, Ballarat is not the same as, you know, as, as Alice Springs, you know, respectfully, right? <laughs> these are, these are, one of these things is not like the other. Yeah. So, so people say, oh, regional could be good. Okay. Let's define regional. Let's get really specific because, yeah, again, you know, the, the Pilbara yeah. versus... Um, yeah, yeah. You're right. You, you've got major regional, right? Major yeah. regional cities and towns, which is, that's very different. Like they almost have their own economies. That's completely yeah. different. And then you've got... Or really genuinely small... have their own economies with diversification. It's yeah, great. exactly. And then you've got smaller regional towns where, you know, small populations and uh, that, that's different. Yeah. yeah. And what you tend to find is realistically any place that has a thriving economy with diverse industries that has great infrastructure and services, um, that has incredible employment and really good earnings, mm. you ain't getting a good property for under 300K. Right, because it's, it, there yeah. is too much demand, yeah, so it's, so it it self selects out. Yeah, yeah, it, it'll be it'd be challenging for sure. It's not going to happen, right? Like <laughs> it just it's just not going to happen. So you know, you've, I've got a better chance of getting pregnant. It's it's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so so that being the case, when we're talking three hundred k properties, what are we actually talking about? Mm. Um, like you mentioned, Alan, we're talking about going really deep, but F nowhere regional. I'm trying to you know, control my swears for this one. Yep. Um, but yeah, we're, 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 not, we're not talking about places with access, amenity, good schools, mm. good employment. It's just mm. not happening. Mm. So that being the case, what are the odds we're going to get anything close to national average capital growth in those locations? Yeah, I would, I would say chances are lower. I think that kind of pretty much covers it. Like, you know, yeah. million dollars, I think, look, we, we're both in the middle. We, I, we'd both rather choose something between, you know, getting two, five to 600K properties, uh, better yield. Hmm. Um, and even actually in that range, uh, I mean, there are markets where you can get, you can get the, you know, capital growth just as good as, let's say, blue chip areas in yeah. field suburbs. You can get nine, 10% capital growth and you don't have the downside of, 
having to fork out thirty, forty thousand dollars a year to hold the property. Winter, Winter Valley and Ballarat, as an example, uh, at one point was averaging fourteen percent capital growth per annum for about yeah. a five-year stretch. So yeah. yep. when people say, "Oh, you can't have capital growth in a in a in a cheaper property in a non-central location," mm. in the words of Arnold, bullshit. Just do the research. Look at the data. I think that's going to be a, 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 a um, ongoing theme now. Yes, um, very much so. Yeah, you can you can you can blame Mike Isertel for it. We might uh, start a competition, and you know, if you can pick how many times John said has said bullshit, uh, you'll get a special prize. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> all right, bit of a short one today. But anything um, anything else to add, John? Yeah, one last thing is just a client example. So a couple of um, really good clients I got the uh, privilege of working with recently. Uh, so they came in um, and they actually had the thought, okay, cool. Uh, what if we did start small with 300K? Is that going to be better for us? Is this going to be less risk? And I said, well, look, you totally could, but let's actually examine the options. What we really broke it down to is what is, what do they need financially? What's the reason we're investing? Now, down the line, the thought for them is to upsize, to move to a more central location, uh, have a bigger home. They're planning for kids at that point in time, probably. Uh, and to do that, they're going to need a million bucks worth of equity to really make it affordable, Right. So we figured out, okay, so let's let's pretend we do go for the 300K property. What are the odds we actually get to do this, right? Um, we'd, you know, chunk down. We're going to be further out. We're not going to grow. We're not going to have as much growth. Um, so down the line, in 10 years holding the 300K property, we'll be lucky to be 200K better off. Doesn't really help us, right? Alternatively, we find a property, you know, five, 600K, uh, which is about their, their borrowing capacity. Uh, we figured out the tax deductions. This is an absolute breeze to hold. It's going to be a net difference of about 200 bucks a week to their cash flow position. Um, um, and they can save considerably more than that. So this is going to be very easy when we stress test it for them. Um, and down the line, uh, based on selling down that asset and the home they live in now, they could potentially go into that new home they want to live in debt free. So as, a, as an alternative strategy, um, clearly has them much better off. So, and all it came down to is what is the risk that we're actually worried about? Um, you know, the... The risk in terms of taking on that debt, given we don't have all the all the cash in our bank account, is you know really can we fund this nine grand per year? That's what it came down to. Because if we can't, fair enough, you know, go with the cheaper property. But if we can't and it's very easy, then what's actually stopping you? What is the real risk here? Yeah, that that's a really good example, right? Just around the numbers, probably not as uh you know risky as you think, but you know check the numbers and you're usually better off. Um, with let's say a higher cost base, right? Like, you know, 7% capital growth on a $300,000 property, you're starting with a lower asset base. You know? If you get it. The, the, yeah, the, big, yeah. the big thing is, again, for that 300K property, are you likely to get 7%? It's possible, mm. but it's not really likely. Yeah. The very, very final thought that I had as well is depending on your income, of course. Now, if you had a million dollars in borrowing, and you just used up, depending on your on the, the way you structure your purchases as well, because you can buy under your personal name or under different entities or different structure types. Mm-hmm. If you actually buy a property, one property for a million dollars, and you use all of your borrowing capacity on that one property, it actually stunts your growth because you mm-hmm. haven't preserved any of your borrowing to to buy the second, third, fourth, fifth property, which you can do with the right structuring and the right type of properties in that structuring. Yep. So that's that's another thing. Um, getting one property, if you max out your BC, 
you're 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 closing yourself off to opportunities where you can actually build a portfolio of four or five properties, which are way going to outperform one property. That was my last thought. I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah, there's a few more points I could elaborate on for that, but we'll save it for another episode. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think a really good point to close off on. There, there you have it. That's uh, that's our take on if you had a million dollars, should you buy one property, two or three? If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and yeah, tell people about us and we hope to see you on the next episode. Catch you later. See you next time, guys.